Hello, dreamers, and welcome back to this series, The Tale of Skeletons in the Closet. This is going to be the second part, so if you haven't listened to part one yet, which is episode number 169, pause this here and listen to that one first to get caught up. I thought in the beginning this was going to be one part, then I thought, okay, I'll do it in two, but really, I think it's going to be three. We are discussing the 1995 murder of a Santa Ana, California resident named Gonzalo Ramirez. In March of 1995, Gonzalo had a chance encounter with a then 20-year-old college student named Patricia Esparza. The day after they first met, Patricia alleged that Gonzalo had sexually assaulted her in her dorm. She did not report the rape to law enforcement, though she did confide in one person, an ex-boyfriend, Gianni Van. Three weeks later, Gonzalo's mutilated body was discovered off the side of the 405 freeway in the city of Irvine. Despite some promising leads, the case grew cold. Meanwhile, Patricia went on to earn her Ph.D. in psychology. She married. She had one child, a daughter, and she moved to France, where she was a professor at a university in neighboring Geneva, and her ex-boyfriend and other suspects thought to have been involved in the murder went on about their lives as well. All the while, Gonzalo's murder remained cold. That is until this case came roaring back to life in 2012. And that's due largely in part because the investigators never forgot about the young man who had been murdered in a manner so brutal it was unlike anything the detectives on the case had ever seen in their careers. It was the kind of brutality that was and is impossible to forget. We're going to pick up the case from where it grew cold back in 1996. And a reminder about the story, this episode may contain details involving child sexual abuse, sexual assault, and maybe disturbing and triggering for some listeners. Listener discretion is strongly advised. Well, this case has stirred up some conversation in our Facebook group with people on both sides of the fence as to what they think about Patricia Esparza, which makes sense because this case isn't so black and white. So when we come to the end of this, we are just going to have to decide for ourselves which way we are going to lean or if we are going to just be destined to never know the truth. Anyway, where we left off in part one, Gianni Van had been picked up by Santa Ana police for questioning in the death of Gonzalo Ramirez. His name came up when they had spoken to Patricia. She identified him as an ex-boyfriend that she confided to that Gonzalo had sexually assaulted her. Because Gonzalo turned up dead three days after Patricia told Gianni about being raped, allegedly raped, he became a person of interest. Not only was he an ex-boyfriend who had been enraged by the news that someone he cared for had been raped, but he also had a white van registered in his name that matched the description of the van that rear-ended Gonzalo's truck, which was the incident that led to his abduction from the scene of that accident and then his brutal murder. Investigators figured that they had enough evidence and there was a motive there, so their case became focused on Gianni. Almost a year after Gonzalo was killed, Gianni was arrested and charged with first-degree murder. 
Their case was going to have to be based almost exclusively on the word of Patricia Esparza. However, as I mentioned at the end of part one, when Patricia was being interviewed for the first time about Gonzalo in June of 1995, I said she had sat there. She was 20 years old at the time. A woman who had said that for nearly her entire life, she was crippled by an intense fear and terror of men. She was able to sit there and told two seasoned detectives questioning her that Gianni Van was her ex-boyfriend when the truth was they were, in fact, married. They got married sometime in May of 1995, about one month after Gonzalo's murder. So when she was sitting there being questioned by these investigators, she was Mrs. Gianni Van, a fact that she did not disclose to them at the time. They would end up finding this information out a year later when they arrested Gianni for the murder. I'll come back to his arrest in a moment. Now, Patricia is going to have an explanation for this later on, though it's going to, again, be up to each one of us listening individually if we are going to believe her or not. But once this information about their marriage came to the surface, it would cause the case against Gianni to crumble because as a married couple, they would be able to invoke their rights to spousal privilege. She could not be compelled to testify against him, which she apparently decided not to. Now, it is going to take another 20 years or so from the time that Gonzalo was actually murdered for this to eventually all play out. So we are able to look back at this 1995 interview Patricia had with the detectives about Gonzalo with the benefit of knowing much, much more about this case than they did back then. And we can say with near certainty that Patricia lied to investigators repeatedly throughout this interview, and she did so willfully and unflinchingly. She was married to Gianni, but she told them that he was her ex-boyfriend. The entire time that she sat there speaking to those detectives, she knew all the while that Gonzalo Ramirez was dead. She knew that he had been murdered, and she knew who it was that murdered him. This is why she didn't ask the detectives why she was being asked questions about Gonzalo. She already knew. And she was very measured in what information that she was divulging. And in doing so, she made certain that they understood that she was the victim here. So the investigation went in that direction for a year. That Gonzalo had raped Patricia. That she told Gianni about it. And he, wanting to exact revenge, tracked down her rapist and murdered him. So the detectives investigating Gonzalo's murder brought Gianni in for questioning and unsurprisingly, he denied any involvement. He admitted to them, yes, Patricia told him that Gonzalo had raped her. But beyond that, she had little to no information about him. She didn't know where he could be found or where he lived. She had only met him on two occasions when they first met at the nightclub and the next day when they went out for breakfast. That was it. There was no way that he could have had anything to do with it, even if he wanted to, because he had no clue as to who this guy was, what he looked like, or where he could be found. All Patricia was able to tell Gianni, he claimed, was that she met him, he had given her a ride, she had never been to his place, and she did not know where he lived. But the detectives weren't really believing Johnny because in the course of the investigation, 
They came to find out that there was a white van registered in his name, and if you recall, it was a white van that rear-ended Gonzalo's truck, causing him to pull over and get out of his vehicle. They knew about this van registered to him, and when they asked him about it, and asked him where it was, where it was parked, he denied owning or driving or having access to a white van. But then the detectives were like, okay, look, we ran your name through the DMV and we know you have a white Chevy Astro van registered to you, so just cut the bullshit. And Johnny was like, oh, yeah, that white van. Yeah, no, that's not really my van. It's registered to me, but it's really owned by another guy. And I don't even drive it, even though my name is on it. Okay, so who is this other guy? Well, he's a guy who is a friend of Johnny's who is the owner of a transmission repair shop called Accurate Transmission. It's parked there. So the detectives secured a search warrant for the transmission shop, and they did find the white Chevy Astro van parked there. The entire shop was searched for any kind of clues or forensic evidence that indicated that a violent event took place there, but the only thing that they found was one drop of blood inside the office area of the business. But another interesting thing that they did notice was the towel dispenser located in the garage had blue towels in it. Blue towels that looked identical to the towels that had been wrapped around Gonzalo's body. So the detectives felt confident that they were headed in the right direction here. So they went ahead and let Gianni go for the time being while they worked on the evidence that they had found. However, when the spot of blood was forensically examined and tested for DNA, it yielded inconclusive results. This was 1995, so DNA testing was not as refined as it is now, of course, but it was rapidly advancing. While Gonzalo could not be excluded as being the source of that blood, it wasn't conclusive enough to say with any degree of certainty that it was his. So with the blood not being of any evidentiary value, at least not at this point in time, investigators wanted to speak to Gianni for a second time to see if they could get any more information out of him. In the time between their two interviews with Gianni, the detectives had discovered that Gianni was actually really good friends with the owner of the transmission shop. His name was Cody Tran. He and his wife, Diane, were the owners of the shop. So as the investigators are sitting there talking to Gianni, they're explaining to him that when you connect the dots between him and Patricia and then Patricia and Gonzalo and then Gonzalo to that white van and then that white van to the transmission shop, well, all of that comes full circle back to him. Gianni was the common link between all of them. Then they bluntly asked him, was the instrument that he used to inflict all of those injuries on Gonzalo's body a meat cleaver. But Johnny stuck to his denials, and in defense of himself, he told the detectives that he could never do something like that to another human being. He isn't the kind of person capable of that kind of violence. He is a loving and caring person. He doesn't have a short fuse. His temper is not out of control. And this is a crime that he is incapable of committing but he continued to insist that he had no idea what they were talking about or what they were accusing him of. Investigators were going to go ahead and let Gianni go for a second time, but they continued to work their case against him. And a little less than a year after Gonzalo's death, they had enough evidence to secure an indictment against him for first-degree murder. He was arrested in March of 1996, charged with killing Gonzalo. 
But there was something else going on that the detectives on this case were unaware of. And I told you about it a little while ago. And that's the fact that Gianni and Patricia were married. They had gone to Vegas a month after Gonzalo's murder and tied the knot. And it seems that the general consensus is that the purpose of this marriage was for Patricia to not have to be made to testify against her husband if he were to be charged with murder and put on trial. The fact was, there had been very little tying Gianni to Gonzalo's murder. So, the case basically would live or die on Patricia's testimony, or lack thereof. And if you guessed that the case was about to die, you'd be right. But it wouldn't be forever. I said earlier that Patricia would have an explanation as to why she married Gianni. I mentioned that the common belief is is that they did it so that she wouldn't have to testify against him. But I'm not so sure if that was exactly the case or not because they got married a month later. Neither one of them had been questioned yet as to Gonzalo's murder. So did they think or know that detectives were closing in on them? And if so, how did they find out? It took a little while to track Patricia down from that phone number written on Gonzalo's phone bill It was a long shot, but the connection was made and Patricia told police how they met and that he ended up raping her the next day. We haven't talked about this yet, but she will later on admit to being there the night that Gonzalo was murdered and she was a witness to the horrible things that were done to him. This is an important fact to understand here at this point in time when she is speaking to police for the very first time. She witnessed him being tortured and murdered yet she will deny knowing that he was murdered that night. But I don't believe that she didn't know that he died that same night. So when Patricia was questioned for the first time about it, she told them about the rape, she told them she confided in an ex-boyfriend about it, and she provided the detectives with his full name, Gianni Van. This was information that she could have kept to herself if she was interested in protecting Gianni but I think it was a move to protect herself. Because you see, Dreamers, she is going to later on say that Gianni Van terrified her, that he threatened her, he intimidated her, that she was scared to death of him, that she was scared for her life, and that fear grew even more when she was made to witness the torture and murder of Gonzalo. She said that the purpose of Gonzalo's murder was to punish her for allowing him to rape her, that Gianni wanted to strike so much fear into her heart that she would be forced to do and say whatever he told her to. Yet a couple of months after being terrorized by Gianni with Gonzalo's murder, she gave his name up to authorities. She had no problem lying to police by telling them that he was an ex-boyfriend when he was actually her husband. So that would lead us to believe that she could have just as easily stayed quiet about Gianni, someone who she was supposedly terrified of, right? If I was deathly afraid of somebody and I was actually married to him, would I lead police directly to them as a potential suspect in a murder investigation? Well, maybe if I was trying to save my own ass, right? That's what I think Patricia is doing here. She knew Gonzalo was dead, and she knew who murdered him. She had been directly linked to him because 
Gonzalo just happened to jot down her phone number on his phone bill. And she's being questioned by police about it. So I believe in an effort to throw them off her track, she offered up Gianni Van. No hesitation. And she was able to do so because she was more afraid of getting charged with murder than she was afraid of Gianni. And by that time, she was already married to him, too. So that brings about a whole new set of questions. Why did they get married? How did that come about? The simple answer for investigators was to throw a monkey wrench into their case. So when the time came for Gianni to be charged, she wouldn't be forced to testify against him because of the spousal privilege laws in California. But I don't know if they really thought all that far ahead about it. Maybe they did. But like I mentioned a moment ago, at the time that they got married, they had not yet been questioned by police. The investigation hadn't gotten that close to them yet. So it wasn't like detectives were banging down their doors when they got married. So this marriage had to have happened for a reason. And the spousal privilege could have been one reason. But you see, later on, years later, Patricia would say that she was bullied, intimidated, and forced into the marriage. Again, she has portrayed herself as an unwilling participant. The Dateline correspondent took her to task for a minute about this, but didn't press too hard. And I get it. I understand. Patricia is giving them an interview, and she may or may not have been the victim of a number of atrocities throughout her life, and they're not going to want to attack her. But this is what was said. Patricia finally confessed to the detectives that she and Gianni were married after his arrest in 1996. She told them that it was not her intention to protect him or anyone else involved in Gonzalo's murder, but rather that she was forced into the marriage by Gianni. The Dateline correspondent asked Patricia, So how do you get yourself into this situation? Like, how does that happen? And Patricia answered, Yeah, I know. I was, again, I was 20. I was not very sophisticated in terms of being streetwise. But then Patricia was asked, why say yes? Why say yes, I'll marry you? And Patricia said, because I feared for my life. When I was told I had to marry him, that is when I learned that Gonzalo Ramirez had been killed. And I thought to myself, oh my goodness, if they are able to do that to him, what are they going to do to me if I don't follow what they say? Patricia said she was naive, but she was also incredibly vulnerable, as we discussed earlier, having first allegedly been sexually abused as a child and then allegedly raped in college. She said on Dateline that she had no ability to use her better judgment, and she questioned how she could have ever been involved with or dated a man like Gianni Van in the first place. Yet, even when she said they'd allegedly broken up, he was the one that she confided in. So if she had an inkling that there was something off about this man, and she wonders how she ever dated him in the first place, why in the world would she open up to him about something so personal unless she had some other ulterior motive? He had committed this terribly brutal murder by way of hacking a man to death with a meat cleaver. And what does Patricia have to say about that? She said, I didn't know that people were capable of that. Of course, you read things in the newspapers, you see things on TV, but you never think it's going to cross your path. You never think that you are actually going to befriend a person 
that's capable of doing that. And dreamers, it's really difficult for me to believe that a young woman who is on the path that she was on, graduating from very prestigious schools, earning her PhD, becoming a psychologist with a focus on working with children, having achieved so much in her life that she was that naive. Maybe it's possible to just be super book smart and completely ignorant in other areas of life. But with the focus on psychology, you have to have some level of understanding people and their behaviors. Another thing that Patricia was questioned about on Dateline, and it was something she never, ever did. And all the things that she has claimed happened to her throughout the years, the abuse, the rape, the murder, the forced marriage, etc., etc., not one time, not once did she ever turn to police. She never went to file reports. She never said enough is enough. The murder of Gonzalo was not enough to get this woman to finally do what is right and go to police. She told Dateline that she was asked why she just didn't go to authorities and tell them everything. And she said, quote, I wish they had told me we will protect you. We will protect you if you come forward. I wish they had told me that. I didn't know. I didn't know that they were capable of protecting me. Again, I don't believe that she didn't go to the police because she didn't think that they could help. This was the second time she has said that about police. She is becoming entwined in all of these very serious crimes, but yet doesn't believe the police can do a thing about any of it. It is my belief that because she had played a pretty big role in Gonzalo's murder, bigger than she was willing to admit, that if she went to police and told them exactly what had happened, that she was going to be charged with crimes too, up to and including murder, with the special circumstances added, there was also the death penalty looming for all of these people as well. Patricia never went to the police to save her own skin, plain and simple. Someone in our Facebook group described Patricia as overplaying the victim card. And I think that is quite an astute observation of what is going on here because she's about to do it again. On Dateline, she was asked if she was in love with Gianni when she married him. And she said, no, absolutely not, that she was trapped that she felt like this was just another punishment for her. Yet, they showed pictures of the two of them, Gianni and Patricia, looking quite happy, holding on to each other, smiling. And I know pictures can be misunderstood or show only a moment in time with very little context around it. But when Patricia says things like terrorized, bullied, intimidated, punished, and then I see big smiling pictures of the couple... It's just not adding up for me. The manner in which Patricia portrayed herself as an unwilling participant in her marriage to Gianni, as I said a moment ago, and some of you have said in your comments and opinions, she is beginning to play the victim card here a little too frequently. She said they never lived together, that nobody knew that they were married, and she told Dateline, quote, how could you possibly be in love with somebody that is so horrific? That may very well have been the case. The marriage may not have been traditional, and perhaps part of it was for the convenience and protection, protection from prosecution. 
But we do know that Patricia continued her education and studied all over the world and went on to earn all sorts of degrees. And that plan doesn't seem like it included Gianni Van tagging along. What was he supposed to do? He's under possible indictment for murder, and Patricia is continuing to ascend through her education into the field of psychology. Whatever the case was, they both together went and said their I do's for one reason or another, and it did cause Gonzalo's murder case to get complicated and to grow cold. I also want to mention the fact that if Patricia wanted to do the right thing, if she would have agreed to testify against Gianni for committing a crime that she says was so horrific, and we know Gonzalo died a very painful death, and I'm going to keep reminding all of us of that at every chance I get because I don't want him and what happened to him to be brushed aside because of Patricia's manipulation of the narrative here. Even if she had married Gianni, she could have chosen to testify against him, but she opted to invoke spousal privilege. This would allow Gonzalo's murderer to remain free, and she wanted to try to go on with her life as well as if nothing ever happened. Whether Gonzalo Ramirez sexually assaulted Patricia or not, and in this country people are innocent until proven guilty, whether or not he did it, he did not deserve what happened to him. His family and his children did not deserve to lose him in that way. If he was the violent rapist that Patricia claimed that he was, she should have made sure he would be charged and prosecuted so he would have hopefully never been able to do that to another woman. But she didn't. And for the past quarter century now, she has been free and clear to continue to accuse him while he's never been able to speak up for himself. Anyway, back to the marriage. Patricia has said over the time that they were married, they eventually stopped talking to one another, though the two did not divorce until some years later. I believe it was about nine years, and I'll talk about that when we get to it. I believe it's like I said, her career was taking off and she was able to study abroad and then eventually work abroad. She went on and lived her life and he went on and lived his. And as long as they were married, the prosecutors on Gonzalo's case, their hands were tied. But they certainly weren't going to ever forget this case. For one, they weren't too thrilled with the manner in which Patricia Esparza had conducted herself how she had lied and manipulated her way through this ordeal and essentially caused them to have to shelve a very brutal murder. They knew that she knew way more than she ever let on, and they knew that she was the key if they were ever going to be able to prosecute the people responsible for Gonzalo's death. And the way that Patricia helped herself and everyone else wiggle out of this, authorities were not pleased, to say the least. I don't think police officers like to lose, and I don't think they like to be played, and they don't like to be outsmarted. So even though Patricia did go on to build an exemplary career for herself in the years to come, she thought she could walk away from this without ever having to look back. On Dateline, Patricia said all she wanted to do was put this whole tragedy behind her and get her own life back. A direct quote from her was, I thought to myself, you're not going to allow them to take away what's so valuable, and that's the ability to trust. How in the world 
am I going to continue on? And that statement really got under my skin. She was not going to allow them to take away what's so valuable, and that's the ability to trust. What is she even talking about here? I'm actually not seeing very many instances here where Patricia has shown any measure of believing in the value of trust. For me, she has demonstrated time and time again that she is one of the least trustworthy individuals in this entire story. Even if you believe that she was raped by Gonzalo, yes, that eliminates any sense of trust you could have in him. But what ended up happening to him, how it happened, that would prove to be an even greater breach of trust committed by Patricia herself. Time and time again, Patricia showed zero appreciation for trust and time and time again demonstrated she absolutely could not be trusted. Then she wondered how in the world she was ever going to be able to carry on after such horrific, nightmarish things to have happened in her life. Well, you know what? She did just fine. As a matter of fact, surviving alleged childhood sexual abuse, surviving an alleged date rape, surviving supposedly having been forced into participating and witnessing the kidnapping, torture, and murder of her alleged rapist, and then surviving being forced into an unwanted marriage with a killer, she actually got over it perfectly fine. According to Dateline, she studied abroad in Africa. She graduated from Pomona College. She became involved in political activism. By 2000, she met a man who was as equally as high-achieving as she was. Both of them had earned degrees in psychology. They fell in love, and I'll talk more about him later. She wanted to continue her education. She wanted to attend DePaul University in Chicago, where she could focus her studies on working with children as she had struggled through her childhood. They would eventually get married in 2004, and from there they would move to France, and Patricia got a job working as a consultant for the World Health Organization, and she was teaching psychology at a nearby university in Geneva. In 2009, at the age of 35 by then, she and her husband welcomed a baby girl that they named Ariana. So finally, Patricia had the husband she'd always wanted, a happy family, a stellar career, and the life that she'd always dreamed of having for herself. The secrets, the lies, the murder was all hidden 15 years and 6,000 miles away. So Patricia's husband, and this would be no surprise to any of you, was lied to over and over and over again for years and years by Patricia. She hid all the secrets of her past. She refused to confide in him. She refused to divulge any of it. Unfortunately, well, He came across in his interviews on Dateline to me that he was completely and totally infatuated, madly in love with Patricia and nothing she did, nothing that she refused to share with him mattered. He just was head over heels. So he put up with her lies and her secrets just to be with her. I believe she continued to play up the victim role and he almost came across to me as wanting to take on this role for himself as her savior and her hero, to carry the weight of her dark past for her, to make her burdens his own so she would just be with him. He would shield her and protect her and make sure to be there to save her. 
I believe that she very much knew how much he loved her and knew that he could help shield her along with being thousands of miles away from all of her problems. And I'm not saying that she didn't love the guy, but I definitely think she knew what she was doing when she chose him and she knew that he was weak and easily manipulated. Let me go back and tell you what Patricia's husband had to say about their relationship and how it developed on Dateline. His name is Jorge Macias. He also has a PhD. His is in neuroscience, but he also has a degree in psychology. They met in 1999 when Patricia was about 25 years old and working on a political campaign. They were both working for the same politician in California. And from the very first sentence that he spoke on Dateline, he too paints the same picture of Patricia being a very frail and fragile individual. But then he goes on to highlight many of her strengths, a thing that Patricia never really does. He was asked what it was like when he first met her. And he said, When I met Patricia, I saw this tiny little woman who was intelligent, very well organized, a real leader. She was inspiring everyone around her. There is nothing Patricia has ever said about herself that would lead us to believe that she was a well-organized leader who inspired people. She would never call herself a leader. She's always the one who has always been so full of fear, intimidated, bullied, and terrorized. Jorge said he was immediately smitten. They seemed to have a lot in common, both having come from impoverished backgrounds in Mexico. They spent their lives working hard at their educations to have better opportunities for themselves. And one of the things that he admired most about Patricia was her desire to work in a capacity that focused on the betterment of the lives of children who grew up in difficult situations like she had. And by 2001, Jorge was ready to pop the question. By this time, Patricia was about 27 years old, seven years removed from the murder that she had been involved in. And Jorge, well, he was 48. So yes, he was about 21 years older than Patricia. So it's easy to see why he would be so enamored with the lovely young woman, no matter what she was hiding from him. Jorge proposed to her in 2001 at the World Trade Center in New York, about one month before the towers would be destroyed in the terrorist attacks. And she said yes. Patricia said she saw this to be the chance for her life to turn a corner, that this man would be her strength as she continued to try and move further and further away from her past. But there was one pesky little thing that Patricia would need to deal with before she could go on and marry Jorge, and that was her marriage to Gianni. She wasn't going to be able to get married until she got unmarried from him. So she spilled the beans one night to Jorge. He said she broke down into tears and told him a tale of Shakespearean-level tragedy, that she was already married, but it was a marriage that she was forced into involuntarily, that it was a marriage that she never wanted, a marriage that never meant anything, that it was never a real marriage. But she told Jorge that she couldn't tell him why, that if she were to tell him, then his life would be in so much danger. It's dramatic, right? And so he accepted that, which kind of surprises me on some levels. But, you know, I told you I felt like this guy was really madly in love with Patricia and he would just take her word for it. My fiance is married, that she was forced into a marriage, but she can't tell me how or why. 
I don't know. It would bug me to no end. And I'd have to know because that's a big ass secret to keep from someone you want to spend the rest of your life with. But he was just going to work around it, I guess. Jorge wanted to marry Patricia, so he decided to hire an attorney to see what could be done about getting Patricia and Gianni divorced. It took about three years of back and forth with Gianni when they finally worked it out. The details of that, if Patricia had to pay him anything, it wasn't detailed. All that was said is that they quote-unquote negotiated. So nine years after Gonzalo's murder and the marriage, it was finally over and she was able to move on and marry Jorge in 2004. But Jorge still didn't know what the heck that marriage and what his wife's secrets were all about. Apparently, Patricia supposedly explained everything to their attorney and that the attorney told Jorge that it was best that he didn't know and he continued to just accept that. Personally, if this was an attorney working for both Patricia and Jorge and it was me, I'd make the attorney tell me what the heck was going on, but... Patricia continued to insist that he remain in the dark. But she had to know that as their relationship went on, there was always going to be this secret hanging over them. I don't think anyone would ever be completely comfortable being in a relationship with somebody who had something that was so detrimental to anyone's safety going on in their background and for it to not take a toll on their relationship. Jorge told Dateline that he was completely mystified by what it was that there was so much to be threatened by, but he loved her, so he was willing to overlook it. He said, quote, I not only loved her, but I realized how unique she was. I felt so at ease with someone who I felt I could completely trust, and I was willing to take any risks, whatever it was that was lurking in her past, in order to be with her. So clearly he didn't care what the threat was, but she still refused to tell him the truth. So off they went, moving to France, both of them with their PhDs, and they had their daughter, and they went on and had the perfect life, the life they'd always dreamed of having. Ask Patricia about that guy, Gonzalo. She'd probably look at you and say, Gonzalo who? To Patricia, her past life, her past secrets were as dead and gone and buried as he was. One of my takeaways thus far throughout this case is Patricia Esparza really only cares about what happens to Patricia Esparza. She made her way up to the pinnacle of her professional career without missing a beat. Despite all the trauma that she says she's experienced, it's actually quite amazing for her to have accomplished all that she had, all things considered. Not everyone would have the wherewithal to make all that happen after so much suffering and painful experiences. However, the manner in which we look at Gonzalo Ramirez's death is going to really hinge on whether or not we believe Patricia's story that she was raped by him. There are a number of ways that we can look at this. We can believe her and feel that revenge got served, deservingly so. We can believe her and feel that he did not deserve the death that he suffered. Or we cannot believe her and feel like Gonzalo was murdered for some other purpose or for some other reason. If we were to explore what that other reason may have been, what would some of those possibilities be? Why would Patricia help set Gonzalo up to be murdered? 
She claimed that she did not know that he was murdered until later on, closer to the time that she was forced into marrying Gianni. She said she thought that he had only been roughed up for raping her. I'll get to her version of what happened the night that he was murdered in a little bit. Because there are specific times when she says that she was present for some of the attack on Gonzalo, and then there are other times when she says she was elsewhere during the attack, and it really doesn't fly with me, but when we get to it, we can decide for ourselves. Aside from getting revenge for raping Patricia, the only other reason I could see her setting this whole scenario up for Gonzalo to be roughed up or even murdered would have something to do with her desire to want to be with Gianni Van, to have his attention in some capacity. Maybe he had rejected her or had broken up with her and this was her weird way of getting back together with him because ultimately she got to marry him, right? I don't know. It's really hard to pinpoint what her reasons or motivations would be to have something like this happen to Gonzalo. So Patricia wrapped up in her own life. I mean, many of us are. And there isn't really anything wrong with that if you've got nothing else in the world to worry about. But for her, she carried with her and buried the knowledge of Gonzalo's death and carried on as if he never existed or mattered. She says that he's a rapist, therefore his life mattered less than hers. He was never charged, convicted, or afforded the opportunity to tell his side of the story. So what are we supposed to do with that? The fact is, is Gonzalo's life did matter to some people. People who loved him, his family, his friends, and his two daughters who were barely toddlers when he died. They grew up without him, and his family was left with the responsibility of raising them as best they could, while having to cope with the fact that not only was Gonzalo murdered so violently, but that murder was never solved. Patricia will go on to use her own four-year-old daughter as a prop when these long-buried secrets resurfaced in 2012. She will repeatedly say things like, tearing my family apart, taking me away from my daughter, separating me from my child, things like that. The exact things that happened to Gonzalo's two daughters she's going to use to elicit sympathy from the public. Patricia's daughter potentially losing her mom to some jail time is by no means any more tragic than Gonzalo's daughters having lost their dad to murder before they ever be of age to have any memory of him. I would be surprised if Gonzalo's children ever crossed Patricia's mind even once. His family not only had the grief of his loss, but also the fact that the person or persons that did that to him had never been brought to justice. I don't know how much or how little the family was told about Patricia and Gianni and their possible involvement. Usually investigators like to keep those things close to the vest when an investigation is active and ongoing. But from the sounds of the interviews for many years, his family were filled with frustration just not knowing what happened to him and not knowing why. Gonzalo's family may have thought that his death was long forgotten that his file was collecting dust in some police station basement in Orange County. But that was not the case. 
I told you early on that this was a crime that was not going to be one of those investigators were going to easily forget. And I would imagine that there were a few reasons for that. One would be, of course, the brutality, the killing of Gonzalo with the meat cleaver. That is not a thing that happens every day, and it is not a scene that is easily forgotten or erased from memory. Another would be is that they had a clear suspect. They knew who was responsible for the killing. They just did not have the evidence necessary to prove it in a court of law. And another would be the manner in which the then 20-year-old Patricia Esparza got one over on them by lying to authorities, by being evasive, and by secretly marrying their prime suspect. None of those things sat well with the investigators back in 1995, and it wasn't going to sit well for investigators who were still looking at the unsolved murder as they entered the new millennium. What they decided they were going to have to do if they were ever going to bring Gonzalo's killers to justice was wait. They were going to have to be excruciatingly patient as they waited for the passage of time and waited for things to change. A part of that change had to do with the DNA technology that had so quickly advanced in the two decades following Gonzalo's murder. And that was one of the first things investigated in the case heading into the 2000s and 2010s was the DNA evidence. At the time, there had been a single drop of blood found inside that transmission shop where it was believed Gonzalo was taken and tortured. They wanted that blood to be tested again using the latest in technology to identify the DNA. This time around, the chances of that drop of blood not belonging to Gonzalo were found to be astronomical. This blood droplet had to be his. The blood was put through some even more sophisticated testing just to make sure, and it was certain that Gonzalo was there in that transmission shop, leaving that blood behind. So some 15 years later, in 2010, Gonzalo's family finally received the call that they had been waiting for all that time. It was from some new investigators who were taking a fresh look at the case. They were surprised but relieved to know that Gonzalo had not been forgotten after all that time had passed. While the DNA was strong evidence linking Gonzalo to the transmission shop and to Gianni Van, they really needed to make that solid connection between the two men, and that solid connection was Patricia. They were going to need to prove that Gianni had the knowledge of Patricia's alleged sexual assault and the identity of the person who she claimed did it. But as long as she remained married to Gianni, they were never going to be able to connect him to Gonzalo. She was what they needed all along. And over the years, that was never forgotten either. Through the years, investigators would randomly look up Patricia and Gianni by way of their social security numbers to find out where they were and if there had been any change in their statuses. They would find out where they were located and check the records to see if there had been any official divorce filings in those locations. In the meantime, I did mention that Gianni and Patricia did get divorced in 2004. At the time, she was attending graduate school in Chicago. While I don't know exactly when the investigator got the hit on Patricia being in Chicago happened, her name popped up having been living and attending school in the area, and after doing a little bit of digging, it was discovered that there was a divorce certificate on file for Patricia and Gianni in Chicago, Illinois. So investigators got on the next flight to Chicago and hopefully were just going to show up on her doorstep and take her by surprise. 
Unfortunately, by the time they got there, not only had Patricia left Chicago, she had left the country. She had already moved to France, settled there, and gotten married. I've read a couple of comment sections and articles on this case that the move out of the country was a very calculated one made on Patricia's part, knowing that Gonzalo's murder case was going to follow her no matter where she went in the United States. Authorities could come knocking on her door at any moment and she'd be arrested. So she decided to live and work in Europe out of the reach of the long arm of the law. But I don't know. Patricia could have wanted to work in other places around the world, even if she wasn't under suspicion in Gonzalo's murder. However, she did say that she had this dream of working with children who struggled in similar circumstances as she had when she was growing up. So she could have just as easily brought her talents to her home country of Mexico or even in the lower income areas of Orange County where she was raised. That is the way many who rise above adversity give back. But she, for whatever reason, went to France and taught psychology at a university in Geneva. So investigators, they can't fly to France and track Patricia down in another country. So they decided to reach out to her directly through email. They asked her for her help in regards to Gonzalo's murder case. And they also made sure to mention that she wasn't wanted or a suspect in the case. They just wanted to talk to her. And they would say on Dateline that they really didn't have any real idea of how much or how little Patricia was involved in the murder and that they really wanted to get more information from her so that they could arrest Gianni Van and the others that were involved. And you're probably not going to be surprised to know that Patricia declined to talk to them. She was probably surprised to get the email thinking that this whole thing had been forgotten and she probably thought she was so far removed both by time and distance that all she had to do was refuse to speak to them and she could continue to carry on with her life. If Patricia Esparza was as smart as she thought she was or as she is because she's actually kind of smart, she should have begun the process of negotiating herself an immunity deal from there in France. And I think they would have done it. At that time, she held a very powerful card in her hand that she could have played. While at the same time, for the very first time in this entire story, she could have chosen to do the right thing. The fact that Orange County investigators contacted her so many years after the murder should have been a big, huge red flag for her to see and realize that they were never going to let this go. This was going to continue to haunt her and follow her for the rest of her life. She had to have known that they needed her testimony to make their case against Gianni and his co-conspirators, and she could have worked herself a deal. She would have come to the United States, provided her truthful statement, her truthful testimony, and she could have been granted immunity. It happens all the time. Do people like that? No, not necessarily. People don't like seeing people get off scot-free. Would we have liked that for Patricia? Nah, probably not. But it can be taken into consideration the fact that she went on to achieve a successful career and lived a good and decent life in the years following Gonzalo's death. She wasn't the actual killer, so I strongly believe she could have worked up a deal and gained full immunity and had done the right thing and provided everyone with the truth as to what happened 
and before long, she'd be back doing her thing in France, her status as a doctor unscathed. No harm, no foul, murderers in jail, case closed. And trust me, there are going to be more of these missteps that Patricia is going to make along the way that will end up costing her dearly. So with her refusal to talk, they were just going to go ahead and put Patricia on the back burner for now. But they certainly weren't finished with her yet. In the meantime, investigators decided to comb through Gonzalo's case file to see if there was anybody else around that would still be able to help make that link between Gianni and Gonzalo if Patricia was going to be unwilling to do it. And there was a name that jumped out at them, a woman named Nancy Luna. She was the friend who went out with Patricia and her sister on the evening of March 25, 1995 to the El Cortez when Patricia and Gonzalo first met. Investigators went out to visit Nancy and to talk to her about the case, and she was still around, and she was able to provide them with information that they had never heard before. She told them that three weeks after they first met Gonzalo, Patricia brought Gianni to the El Cortez herself. She went inside with him and pointed Gonzalo out to Gianni as the man who raped her. This contradicted everything Patricia had been telling investigators all those years. Well, at least what she was telling them when she was speaking to them. She had always maintained that she had no information or knowledge of Gonzalo's murder. But here, with Nancy, they had someone who was able to connect Patricia directly with Gianni and Gonzalo on the night that he was murdered. And another reason that this was a huge deal for investigators was the fact that they never really thought Patricia was involved in the murder at all. Not until they got this information from Nancy that not only was she involved, she was the one that led Gonzalo's killers directly to him. And it also brought up the realization of just how much Patricia was in the know as to what happened when she spoke to and directly lied to those detectives all those years ago back in 1995 when they first asked her about Gonzalo. So with this new information from Nancy, not only did the case against Gianni grow a little bit stronger, a case against Patricia Esparza was born. This is where most people become divided on this story, whether or not there should even be a case against Patricia. If you scratch the surface of this story, the initial reaction is no, Go after the guys who did this. After all, she says this man raped her. She suffered enough. Go after the actual killers. She's done good with her life. She's a PhD. She's an educator. She's a mother. Let her be. Then there are those of us, myself included, who have picked this case apart to death. We have looked at every single strategic step and move Patricia has made throughout her life since Gonzalo's murder and none of them were ever for the purpose of doing the right thing for the murder victim. Every move was for the benefit of Patricia and Patricia alone, protecting herself at all costs. There were so many times when she could have made one choice differently, and none of us would have been sitting here talking about this today. She could have gone straight to the police after she alleged Gonzalo raped her and made her report. They would have collected the evidence, they would have investigated, and if there was enough to prosecute, 
then Gonzalo would have been made to face those charges in a court of law. Then Patricia chose to confide in Gianni Van, of all people, who would turn around and end up murdering Gonzalo. This has perplexed me for so much of the story, and I could not figure out why she would tell him. One of you who listened to part one left a comment or messaged me and said that she may have told Gianni in order to get sympathy or attention from him, and I think I brought that up a little earlier. This has happened before, and with this case, things just went way too far. There have been times when women have told little white lies about something happening with another guy or lied about being pregnant to get attention and sympathy or to get a man back. It's not unheard of. We have suspected that perhaps Johnny and Patricia were still in a committed relationship at the time and she wound up meeting Gonzalo. Then something happened between the two of them either the sexual encounter that was consensual or it was not consensual. And maybe she was trying to make Gianni jealous for some reason. There was a comment that said something like maybe the sex between Patricia and Gonzalo started off consensual, but something started to go wrong or something happened where she got offended or he got offended and the whole thing just went bad, which may have prompted the statement from Gonzalo when he said you got a lot of problems and then he left. Maybe it was something like that. She took offense to what he had said or something that he had did and decided to accuse him of rape. And then she told Gianni about it, thinking she would get Gonzalo back for embarrassing her or making her feel bad and things just went too far. There are so many possible scenarios. It just depends on what actually happened and we just really aren't ever going to know the truth. That's the biggest mystery for me in this story. Why murder the guy and why so brutally? We just don't know. Patricia is the one who led Gianni to Gonzalo. If she had never done that, he'd be alive today. She says that she was bullied and intimidated into going along with Gianni, that he forced her to identify Gonzalo so he could get revenge. That's just about her biggest role in this murder. There have been plenty of cases of people who had not a direct hand in someone's death yet would still be held accountable the same if they had committed the murder themselves. If you're there and you're going along with the crime and a murder happens, you're just as responsible. Her singling out Gonzalo and identifying him for Gianni is not very much different than someone looking to hire a hitman if you really think about it. It just all depends, I guess, on how much Patricia knew. If she knew Gonzalo was going to be murdered or if she thought that he was just going to be roughed up. Her culpability depends on that. And she would try to use that to her advantage by claiming she had no idea that Gonzalo was killed that night. But the things that she did admit to being witness to, she had to know that these guys weren't going to allow him to live and report them all to police, including herself. And she would claim that they made her come and see Gonzalo getting beat up and that he knew why he was there for allegedly raping Patricia. If he was going to live, he'd report to police that Patricia was involved. He'd have to because he had no idea who all these other people were. The only person he knew was her. And they brought him to their place of business. Gonzalo had to die, so it's very difficult for me to believe Patricia thought Gonzalo survived that night. 
Then she married the prime suspect and essentially hindered the murder case for what would end up being two decades. She made herself unavailable in any capacity in terms of the investigation and went on with her life never looking back. There were a lot of years in there where she could have had a moment of clarity and a sense of conscience, especially when she was getting ready to marry Jorge, when she had his unconditional love and support And she could have came forward and said, the only way that I'm going to be able to truly move on with my life is if I make things right with my past. But she again decided to go the way that was best for Patricia, negotiating her divorce from Gianni, quickly marrying Jorge, and quietly leaving the country. Each time Patricia failed to do the right thing, I could very easily see police investigating this case, looking at it as another jab that she's taking at them. They really wanted to prosecute Gonzalo's case, but Patricia threw up roadblocks in front of them at every turn. She hindered their case. She lied. She ran. She hid. And even years later, when they were still trying to put Gonzalo's case to rest, to give the family some measure of justice and closure, if closure is even possible, Patricia continued to stonewall investigators, refusing to speak about the case at all. So they finally got fed up with trying to work with her. So instead of continuing to try to get her cooperation, they were going to try to get her her own murder indictment. And with the information from Nancy Luna, they saw for the first time they might just be able to do that, charge her along with everyone else. But that meant there would have to be more waiting. Because Patricia was in France, authorities had no jurisdiction over there. She refused to answer any questions about the case. So what they were going to have to do was wait and hope that one day Patricia was going to enter back into the United States for some reason. It would be then that they'd be able to get to her and speak to her. So her name was added to the watch list and the waiting began. Eventually, the waiting would pay off. Patricia flew back to the United States in October of 2012 for what she told Dateline was for professional travels. And I do believe the university that she was working for was pulling professors from their various campuses from around the world for a conference that was to be held in St. Louis, I believe. So there is some truth in that this trip to the United States was to be for professional reasons, as she had stated. But there would be more to Patricia's story regarding this trip, as you would expect from this master of half-truths, and I'll come back to that in a moment, but Patricia flew into Boston's Logan Airport for a layover before she would be connecting to her flight to St. Louis. However, as I mentioned, Patricia's name was on the United States Homeland Security watch list, and as soon as she came through customs and handed over her passport, ding! her name popped up on the computer screen. Patricia was immediately able to tell that something was up by the look on the customs officer's face because it probably doesn't happen too often. And I don't know exactly who all are on this watch list, but I imagine there are usually a bunch of known or wanted terrorists, people wanted by the FBI, people who are well-known, maybe like Roman Polanski, who I believe lives in either France or Poland and... He's been arrested a few times because he's wanted here in the United States for a crime that he's already been convicted of, which is unlawful intercourse with a minor, 
but he fled the country before he could be sentenced. And all the attempts to have him extradited back to the United States have been denied. So he has been known to be very careful about leaving France. And I think that's where he's living now. And hey, it might even be part of the reasons why Patricia picked France, knowing that the United States has had difficult times getting wanted fugitives extradited back from that country, particularly prominent people like Polanski, and maybe even like herself, a doctor of psychology. That's pretty prominent. Anyway, whatever sorts of colorful people are on the watch list, it was probably quite a surprise for this itty bitty little professor to come through the airport and her name pops up on this officer's screen. On Dateline, Patricia described the customs officer's face becoming flushed. He asked her for her social security number to confirm that she is indeed the same individual on his computer. And it was beginning to sink in for Patricia that something was up and it didn't look good. So the officer had another female officer detain Patricia, at which point she was brought into a secured room. She was searched, her luggage was searched, and she was placed in handcuffs. While all of this was happening, the prosecutor who had most recently been investigating Gonzalo's case, Mike Murray, he had received a call that Patricia Esparza had entered into the United States through Boston. He caught the next flight out there to meet her at the airport. What Patricia may not have realized is that Murray was on his way and he had more questions for her, but he had already secured a first-degree murder warrant for her arrest, so she was done no matter what she tried to do. He arrived the next day and was finally able to meet and speak to Patricia face-to-face in a detention area located in the airport. Patricia told Dateline, It was the longest night of my life. And then dreamers get this. Patricia said, and she actually said this, I wasn't naive. What I took that to mean was she couldn't play the naive card any longer. She's clearly aged out. By this time, she was 38. She was a mom. She was a PhD. She was a professor. There's no way she was going to be able to pull off the I didn't know anything story. Murray wasn't expecting Patricia to say anything to him in that holding area in Logan Airport, and he wasn't wrong. He already knew what this woman was capable of, lying to investigators, hindering a murder prosecution, marrying their main suspect in the murder, etc., etc. Patricia Esparza was going to make sure that she did anything she needed to do to ensure that she wasn't going to lose everything that she had spent the last 17 years building. She had nothing to say. She refused to answer questions. I can't be sure what Patricia thought was going to happen to her at that point. All the other times that she's either lied to or refused to speak to investigators, she was able to simply walk out the door, go home, and never look back. And there's a part of me that thinks that Patricia figured the further she moved away, the higher that she would be able to ascend in her education, her profession, and in her career, with a home and a family, that the more out of reach that she would be like she thought that she would become untouchable to these lowly cops in their petty little murder case. But if she thought she was going to get on with her connecting flight, she had another thing coming. But the one thing that the prosecutor said that he wanted to make sure Patricia had was the opportunity to speak to them voluntarily and on her own. 
I've gone over the numerous times over the years when Patricia had the chance to do the right thing and speak the truth. I even said if she had been a little smarter about it, she may have been able to negotiate herself a full immunity deal because ultimately Orange County officials didn't want her. They wanted the murderers. They just needed her to fill in the missing pieces of their case. I know it's easy to sit here with all this hindsight and talk about what she should have done, and I can't say that I would have known what the right thing to do was in this situation or if I would actually do them myself. But that's what attorneys are for. And I'm certain she could have brokered a deal for herself years earlier. There have been people who have had way more culpability in a murder than Patricia did in Gonzalo's and that have been given the sweetest of sweetheart deals. But the end justified the means in that they wanted to go for the bigger fish, as they say. But Patricia never demonstrated that level of integrity. No matter how many chances she had, she always chose the path that was most convenient for herself. She says that she was always forced and bullied, but that simply just doesn't line up when we look at the astounding achievements that she's made and was continuing to make as she carried on with her life. Anyway, this meeting at the airport was yet again another opportunity for Patricia to make the decision to do the right thing, to help police with the knowledge that she'd been keeping from them for 17 years, to finally work with them instead of against them. And let's not forget to give a grieving family some measure of hope that they'd be seeing justice served against the men who committed this murder. Now, Patricia's invoked her right to remain silent, which was probably the right thing to do at that time in the airport, but she really needed to get herself an attorney and start cooperating. In the Dateline episode, the prosecutor said he just wanted to make sure Patricia knew that she had this chance again to get straight with them and tell them the truth, and for her to remember that she had this opportunity because he was certain that there would come a time when she probably would regret it. And by the way, a moment ago, I talked about the purpose of Patricia's trip to the United States and her claim that it was of a professional nature. Well, come to find out that when investigators were at the airport, there was a man there, a romantic interest of Patricia's. He was there at the airport waiting to pick her up. When they spoke to this man, He said that he had plans to meet with Patricia. He was there to pick her up from the airport, and she was actually scheduled to fly to her conference a week later, and that they were going to spend that week together there in Boston. While it's not a big deal in terms of the criminal case at hand, it does give us a little bit more insight into Patricia and her integrity. While she gushes about her husband being the most wonderful human being in the world, that he has been her strength and her rock from the very beginning, yet she's got Mr. Hookup over here in Boston. And I'm fairly certain that she didn't tell Jorge that she was headed to a conference in St. Louis, but she was going to get laid over in Boston for a week, both literally and figuratively. But... Patricia already knew that she was capable of keeping her deepest, darkest secrets from her husband. And while he was curious, he never pushed and he stood by her and loved her, even though he knew something horrific was lurking inside. Jorge even said that he trusted her so completely that he didn't care 
that he would do whatever it took to be with her. So I'm sorry that he got sucked into Patricia's vortex of lies and deception. We can't help who we fall in love with, I guess. But just like everything Patricia had ever done in her life, I believe she chose Jorge for very specific reasons to suit her purposes. He had to be as high achieving, if not more so than herself. He had to be much older and feel as though he really hit the jackpot with Patricia. He had to feel like he could never be with a woman as beautiful, young, and intelligent as Patricia. That way, she would be able to get away with keeping all of the secrets she wanted to keep from him, with little to no questioning her, and without any worries that he would ever walk out on her. Because she probably was thinking that he would never be able to find another woman like her who would want to be with him. That's just my opinion. She picked him because she could get away with murder. Literally, right? Once it was clear that there was not going to be very much to be gained from talking to Patricia at the airport, Murray went ahead and slapped her with his first-degree murder arrest warrant. She did not see that one coming. She called Jorge, still back in France, and told him she was getting arrested. It was then that he knew he was going to finally know what all of this was about. Whether Patricia liked it or not, he was going to find out now. Since she was going to be taken into custody and extradited back to Orange County from Boston. Patricia finally told her husband some of the key details in what happened back in 1995 and in the years following. So, with the information that Jorge got from her, he was finally able to try and put the pieces of what happened together for himself. When Patricia talked about getting to the county jail, she was feeling really sorry for herself and she wanted anyone watching Dateline to feel sorry for her too. When she was taken into custody, she said her thoughts first shifted to her daughter. What was going to happen to her daughter? Well, honestly, the same thing happened to Gonzalo's daughter, but worse. Patricia's daughter was going to be raised by somebody other than her, at least for a time. With one striking difference, Patricia's daughter, Ariana, was going to be able to see her mother again someday. On going to jail, Patricia said to Dateline, quote, I felt as if I was transported into a different planet when I went into jail. I mean, this is a world that was completely unknown to me. How you have no control over what you eat, when you eat it, where you eat it, when you sleep. Everything is stripped away from you. Yeah. I'm sure it isn't the same as frolicking on the beaches of Saint-Tropez or sailing the Mediterranean along the Riviera in the south of France, right? Well, anyway, for the prosecutor, the point of getting Patricia into jail or transported onto another planet, as she put it, what he wanted was for her to have some time to sit around and think about continuing to maintain her silence. In speaking with her attorney in the days and weeks following her initial incarceration, the prosecutor let it be known that he wanted to speak to Patricia. He wanted her to speak to him. He was clear that he couldn't make her any promises about what would ultimately happen with the charges that she was facing, but that he would give her a chance to make a statement under immunity, but that they would need to then evaluate that information that she provided, including its veracity and sincerity. And after that, they would come to a decision as to which direction they would go, 
whether they would have anything to offer her or if they would offer her nothing. After about two months of sitting around in the county jail, Patricia finally decided to talk. This would be in December of 2012. The interview was recorded with some excerpts of them played on Dateline. With her attorney in the room, Patricia talked about meeting Gonzalo at the El Cortez and eventually got to the alleged rape in her dorm room, stating, As I struggled more, he became a bit more aggressive. I was pushing him back, and um, at some point, he pinned me down, and I uh, was wearing a pair of jeans, and uh, he took those off. And from there, he forced himself on her. So the story was pretty consistent as she told it 17 years earlier. She then told Prosecutor Murray how she had opened up about the assault to Gianni Van and that upon hearing what had happened, he became infuriated. He was so angry that he demanded that Patricia tell him who this guy was. She told him his name was Gonzalo and that she met him at the El Cortez. And the most pivotal information that she provided was admitting that she was at the El Cortez the same evening that Gonzalo was murdered. On the recording of the interrogation that they played on Dateline, Patricia said, I remember Gianni being really on edge that night, and I just felt, I felt so much pressure at that point, and we went to the El Cortez. We were there for, I don't know how, I actually don't know, I don't know, but Gonzalo was there at the club, and I identified him. She was asked, when Gianni told you that he wanted you to point this guy out in the club, did he tell you what he was going to do? And she answered, uh, intimidate him, scare him, rough him up. So there, Patricia denied having any knowledge beforehand that a murder was going to take place, which to me is debatable. And we'll go over all of that later on once we hear all about what she said happened that night. So with this information from investigators that they were finally getting from Patricia, they were able to get those long-awaited arrest warrants for Gianni Van and the others who were involved in the kidnapping and murder of Gonzalo. By the end of 2012, they were able to arrest Gianni Van and his co-conspirators, Shannon Grease and Diane Tran. She was the owner of the transmission shop that Gonzalo was brought to, along with her husband Cody Tran, but Cody had committed suicide about five months earlier in July of 2012 after some sort of altercation with police or a chase that may have ensued. I didn't look up the details because there is already so much going on here in this story, but I gathered that when police were closing in on him that he had a gun, which he turned on himself and he took his own life. I also believe that I read that he had been plagued with substance abuse issues and there was just a lot of things going on with him. So he would never be made to face trial for his role in Gonzalo's murder, but his widow would. When you break down the story of what happened the night Gonzalo was murdered, a clear plan had been set in motion. Acting on the information provided by Patricia that this was a man who had allegedly sexually assaulted her, she provided these individuals with the location where he could be found and she went there with them and pointed him out to them. This murder could not have been possible if it weren't for Patricia Esparza's actions. And that is where the most controversy about this case hangs. 
whether or not Patricia should have been held accountable for her role in Gonzalo's murder, whether she should be given a pass because she's accused him of raping her, and she said she did not go along with this plan to hunt him down and kill him willingly, that she was forced, intimidated, and bullied into it, that she had no choice but to show Gianni and company where to find Gonzalo and singled him out for them so that they would be able to carry out their plan. Patricia claims that she thought that they would rough him up. She said that she had no idea that he was going to be murdered. And she said she had no idea that he was murdered until she was informed of that fact when she was forced into marrying Gianni. Now that I think of it, the Slate.com has a pretty good overview of the story. And I think may be able to fill in some of the blanks that I may be forgetting here. So I'll go over the Slate article in a moment, probably in the next part. But this killing to prosecutors was carefully orchestrated, stalking him at the El Cortez, following his vehicle, causing a staged accident, jumping him, kidnapping him, taking him to the transmission shop, and then to the site where he was dumped. None of this was a spur-of-the-moment event. It goes without saying that Gonzalo's family was very grateful that his murder was never forgotten, which we all know can easily happen. Gonzalo's family were immigrants from Mexico. In speaking to Dateline, his brother clearly had a prominent accent as he spoke. Gonzalo's daughters, it seems, were raised in Mexico, so when they were spoken to on Dateline, they spoke in Spanish. There are times when the justice system can be unfair and biased against people of color, so the fear of Gonzalo's death being left to collect dust was very real for his family and loved ones. When the prosecutor spoke to them, Gonzalo's family let him know that they put their faith in him and their faith in the laws of California to make sure that justice was going to be served, even though it would ultimately take two decades. Now that those three defendants were in custody, Gianni Van, Shannon Grease, and by the way, Shannon Grease is male. I forgot to point that out since he has a gender-neutral name and Diane Tran, now that they were all in custody, Patricia was on bail, they needed to figure out what they were going to do about the case against her. I guess you could say that this was turning into a game of chess of sorts. Now, it isn't often that a criminal defendant under indictment for first-degree murder is given an affordable bail, if they are given any bail at all. But an exception was made here for Patricia, I guess they assessed whether or not they would have considered her to be a flight risk. I mean, her primary residence at the time was in France. Even when a murder defendant is out on bail, one of the things confiscated is their passport, but they didn't even do that. She was freed on bail and she was free to travel to and from her home in France as her court dates came about. She could have very easily pulled a Roman Polanski and chose to never come back to the United States ever again. However, authorities made sure that the cost of her jumping bail and absconding would be high. Her mother put her home up for collateral. If Patricia decided not to come back, authorities would seize her mother's house. They didn't think that Patricia would allow her mother to lose her home like that, which she didn't. Patricia would go on to show up for all of her court dates to come. In this particular chess match, Patricia was in a very strong position to see herself skate without any criminal convictions 
without any more jail time and with the ability to eventually never have to see the inside of an Orange County courtroom ever again, which, of course, is what she wanted. And she could have gotten that. The prosecutor and the district attorney could have made that coveted deal that she now desperately wanted. Her testimony against Gianni, Shannon, and Diane in exchange for immunity from prosecution. If you take the case against her for what it is and take her word for what she says happened, when you weigh it all out, it feels fair. Getting the people who actually had a hand in killing Gonzalo was more important than trying to prosecute all four of them without Patricia's cooperation. But Patricia Esparza wasn't exactly a person that authorities were very fond of because of her unwillingness to be cooperative at all over the years, for lying to police, for marrying their prime suspect, and for causing this case to drag on and on for much longer than it ever should have. Patricia caused so many years to slip by for these killers to be free and for Gonzalo's family and loved ones to grieve and wonder if they'd ever see justice. Not that Patricia ever cared about Gonzalo's family, but they very much matter in this story too. They do not believe that Patricia deserved to get off scot-free, but there are some that believed and still believe that she should not be prosecuted at all. It all centers on whether or not Patricia was a victim in the story start to finish. Whether she was raped by Gonzalo, even at this point in the story, it is really a moot point because what happened next should have never happened whether he raped her or not. She told her boyfriend or her ex-boyfriend that she was raped. She asserts that after she confided in him about the rape, he told her he wanted to find the guy and rough him up. She claimed that she was not told Gonzalo was going to be murdered, that they just wanted to beat him up, making sure that he knew that he was getting beat up for raping Patricia. However, Gianni was going to need Patricia's help in finding Gonzalo and identifying him. This is the point where we would have to decide whether we believe Patricia was a party to the crime or whether she was bullied or intimidated into it. Whether she did it on her own or whether she was forced into it. We don't know because we only have Patricia's word on that and her credibility is basically null. She had lied about being the one who identified Gonzalo in the first place. That is until a fresh set of eyes took a renewed look at this case and saw that there was someone who knew that Patricia was not only the one who identified Gonzalo to his killers, but was also there with them the night that he was murdered. That friend, Nancy Luna. She was the very first person to tell investigators that Patricia went with Gianni to the El Cortez the night that Gonzalo was killed and pointed him out. Prior to that, they had no idea that Patricia was there. That was the information that got the ball rolling on the case after it had laid dormant for more than 15 years. That and the fact that she secretly married Gianni. That really put the skids on the case against him. Though Patricia insists she was bullied, forced, and intimidated into everything. While the state of California does have a spousal privilege law, it doesn't mean that Patricia couldn't testify against him. It only means that she couldn't be forced into it. It also had no bearing on whether or not she could have provided testimony against all the others that were complicit in the killing. She made the decision to invoke her right to remain silent. Without her sworn testimony and without any other evidence tying Gianni and company to the killing, the case stalled out. 
Patricia is the reason this case grew cold, and she quietly went on with her life. The case came back to life in 2010 and 2012, not only when DNA technology advanced to the point where investigators were able to say with unassailable certainty that Gonzalo Ramirez was inside Cody and Diane Tran's transmission shop, but when they also found out Patricia and Gianni divorced in 2004. All of that breathed new life into this case. When they found out Patricia was living in France, they sent her an email. This email, it may have been an olive branch or it may have been a trap. But either way, Patricia continued to refuse to speak to any of them about it. So they placed her name on the watch list and waited for her to arrive stateside. Once she set foot on American soil again, she was asked again to speak up but she continued to refuse, so she was slapped with the first-degree murder arrest warrant. The chess match was heating up. I still believe Patricia could have long ago brokered herself a sweetheart deal, testified against everybody, continued her studies, and gone on with the careers that she would eventually have. But by the time she was arrested in 2012, there simply wasn't going to be a sweetheart deal for her on the table anymore. We could probably say with a great deal of certainty that investigators were done trying to deal with this woman. Victim or not, she hindered the prosecution for far too long for a very serious crime. The most serious crime. It has been said to me in messages, and it's probably been said in some of the comments on this case in the Facebook page and on social media, and what I'm going to discuss later on, and I tend to believe this sentiment as well, I think part of Patricia's motivation to continue to pursue her higher education, her PhD, her job as a psychologist, a consultant, a professor, etc., and moving to France was to avoid ever being prosecuted for her involvement in Gonzalo's murder. So there is that certain level of consciousness of guilt. Of course, she could have very well done the same exact things, even without his murder looming over her, but I do think that she worked as hard as she could to distance herself from ever being held accountable. And I think it's worth mentioning since, you know, all that being said, if Patricia had had such a deep and profound fear of Gianni Van, she could have done exactly the same thing to avoid him as she did to avoid prosecution. Patricia isn't like other abused or battered women who have spoken up and expressed tremendous fear of an intimate partner who had no place to run and no place to hide and no refuge from the fear and the intimidation. Patricia clearly had the means, the ability, and the resources to run and hide. She did it for 17 years, hiding from the law. She could have done it to avoid Gianni Van. She just underestimated the long arm of the law. Let's not forget that in the years that Patricia was married to Gianni, she said it herself that they never lived together. She continued studying in other states and in other countries, and eventually they were out of communication completely. It wasn't as if he was hovering over her life, making sure she maintained her silence by continually threatening her. As a matter of fact, it was she who eventually reached out to him for the divorce. Because remember, Patricia does what she needs to do to get what she wants. Not once did she ever say that she was so fearful of having to confront the issue of their marriage because she wanted to marry someone else. 
She never said she was so scared to have to see him or talk to him. Nothing of the sort. All that was said was that the divorce was negotiated. And I can't say what all of that meant, but to me, it sounds like he was paid off. Once Patricia divorced Gianni, she married Jorge. She finished up her studies. She built up her career. She moved to France. She had her daughter. And with all of that in place, she was sure that Gianni, Gonzalo, and everyone and everything related to them was gone and buried deep into a past she never thought she would have to revisit. That is until she made the mistake, as I said, of underestimating the persistence and the resolve of the authorities in Orange County, California, who never forgot Gonzalo Ramirez. They never forgot his grisly killing. They never forgot his family or his daughters, who were made to grow up, never having the chance to know their father. And most importantly, they never forgot the woman who took them for fools every step of the way. Okay, dreamers, I posted in the group yesterday that I was going to go ahead and split this up into three parts. When we come back to this, we're going to pick it up from the deal that Patricia Esparza may be able to cut with prosecutors in Orange County as she continues to try to wiggle her way out of spending any more time in the Orange County Jail. And hopefully we'll be able to wrap this up from there. I'm also going to try to go back through the comments and opinions that you guys wrote and left on social media about this case. Um, not all of us agree on whether or not Patricia was raped, but most of us agree that she just wasn't right. But I think that in between parts two and three, I'm going to have to switch gears over to Patreon for the January episode before January gets away from me. So hang in there. We'll finish up with Patricia as soon as possible. If you want to continue listening to this particular episode, I will give you an update about Betty and Jane. Otherwise, we can part ways now. I'll be back soon with part three. This is turning out to be one of my favorite cases to research and develop opinions and theories about, so I'm looking forward to continuing to dive in. So until then, thank you so much for listening. And as always, sweet dreams. So a quick update about Betty and Jane. As you know, Betty passed away back on December 29th. Officially, I believe it was heart failure. All of you who sent messages and reached out to me, thank you so much. It was a tough couple of days. And if I'm truly being honest with you, I did turn to my husband and tried to talk to him and grieve. And he let me down. He wasn't there for me, so that was hard because I had thought we had gotten to a better place with one another. But I had you guys who listened to my update about Betty and cried with me, and that's all I really needed. My daughter, too. She called me more. She listened more. She usually does most of the talking. However, when I talk to Jane, I still cry a lot, which is what I'm going through right now. The last time Jane saw her mom was technically on December 14th, but when I found her, she was not conscious or responsive, so she isn't even really sure when the last time she remembers seeing and talking to her. 
I called paramedics and I told Betty that I was going to send Jane to the hospital, that she wasn't doing very well. And Betty was good with that. She told me she wanted her to get some help and she knew that she was very sick and she had been telling her to go see her doctor. I knew that it was imperative that I called 911 for Jane, but it was nice to have Betty's support and that she was okay with that. It's still her kid, you know. And as you know, if you listen to my update, Betty failed to thrive in Jane's absence and we ended up calling 911 for her too sometime later. And Betty was hospitalized for three days, but, you know, because of COVID-19, they really needed to sort through patients by priority. And I understand that completely. So arrangements were made for Betty to come back to her home under hospice care. She was transported back to her house on Tuesday night, December 29th, but she died within minutes of laying down in her own bed. The last time I saw her was when 911 was called for her. I held her hand and I told her we were going to get her some help so she could come home and be with Jane. By this time, Jane was in a rehab facility, and with COVID-19, there was absolutely no coming or going, no visiting, nothing. There was no way Jane could have left the facility to come home when Betty was brought back. When I called 911 back on December 14th for her, that was the last time she would see her mom. Jane finally got home last week on January 5th. I visited a couple days later, and as of this week, I'm back there a few hours a day, still helping to get the place organized. There's still lots to be done, but I took today off because it's been kind of emotionally draining being around her, and I really needed to get this episode recorded. Jane's pretty heartbroken over her mom's death, as you can imagine. She feels like she let her mom down by not being there. I talked to her for a while yesterday about it, and I told her, your mom was 98. She was done. That's a really, really long time to have your parent. I told Jane maybe Betty just knew that she needed to focus on herself. Jane's health is failing, and I'm pretty sure Betty would not have wanted to see her pass away before her. That's a parent's worst nightmare, your children passing away before you. I told Jane, the day that I called 911 for you, you were laying there unconscious, and your mom was sitting over there, helpless to do anything. Though I don't think Betty knew how close to death Jane actually was. I said to Jane yesterday, you wouldn't have wanted that for Betty? For you to have just died right there like that? And Jane told me that I should have let her die that night. I told her that I felt like I did the right thing, and if I had to do it over again, I wouldn't change my decisions. We cried a lot yesterday talking about Betty, so I hope as each day passes, it gets a little bit easier. This isn't really something that I'm used to having to deal with. Because of COVID-19, Betty's funeral won't be until January 29th. The funeral home was giving Jane's husband the runaround. Betty had all of her burial expenses paid for when her husband died back in 2005. 
everything should have been covered, but you know, things cost a lot, lot less in 2005 than they do now. So when it came time for Betty's arrangements to be made now, they were trying to say that they had no record of her having anything paid for except for the plot. And you know, based on the condition Betty's home was in, all of the massive amounts of clutter and mess, hopes of finding any records that she may have had in her belongings was slim to none. And it wasn't even slim. It was pretty much none. For five days straight, I rushed to get Betty's bedroom into a condition where Jane and her husband could be comfortable in the home. It was in terrible shape, and while I was making some progress with Jane so resistant to getting rid of anything, it was hard to make any real progress. So while she was in rehab and with her husband's blessings, I gutted the entire living room and bedroom. I think I filled four or five dumpsters, at least, full of bags of garbage. I just went through and made sure that everything was garbage. I kept very close track of things that I knew were important to Jane, but if she had been there, she would have wanted to look at every single scrap of paper. And when I'm finding piles and piles of junk mail and receipts from as far back as 2000, I wasn't going to stop and analyze whether or not it needed to be kept or shredded. I just trashed everything. What I couldn't finish up and what I didn't want to get rid of without talking to Jane first, I dumped all in the first front bedroom that I had begun clearing out towards the end of last summer when I first met them to be dealt with later. The living room and bedroom were finally functional. So I don't know if it was luck or maybe it was serendipitous. But in the very last hour, right before Jane's husband was about to leave to pick her up from rehab, I was clearing out the last of the bags and boxes that had been piled up along the wall in Betty's bedroom. When two large manila envelopes fell out of a box and onto the floor. I had set up a specific place in the corner of the living room where I was putting anything that I found in her bedroom that looked like important documents into one pile. I was going to add those two envelopes to that pile, but when I went into the living room, Jane's husband was kind of in the way, so I handed them to him, and I asked him to add them to the pile that I had made. He glanced at the envelopes, and one of them was stamped with the address of the funeral home. He looked inside, and there was the invoice, the contract, and all the paperwork that proved that Betty had paid for all of her services in full. Of course, Jane's husband was overjoyed because he was staring at the prospect of having to pay for everything, and I was happy for that. But in a weird way, it kind of felt like it was sort of a thank you from Betty for cleaning up her bedroom so her daughter could finally be comfortable. Because the only way that that paperwork was going to be found was if everything piled up in that bedroom was cleared out. And I mean everything. And I was down to the very last of it when I found those two envelopes. And I don't ever really think that the dearly departed ever speak to us. Maybe in our dreams I might think that. But this was probably one of the first times I felt like I was being sent a message when those envelopes fell out and landed near my feet. Jane wanted me to thank all of you for wishing her mom a happy birthday last week, too. 
the cake we had was great, and I appreciate all of you who joined me. Anyway, thanks for listening to this update. I'm going to continue to do what I can for Jane. I'm hoping she lets go of feeling like her mom's death is her fault and focus on her own recovery. Her husband is leaving next week to go back to Virginia. She doesn't know when he's coming back, so it's hard to say how she's going to do. Nurses and rehab people are going to come to the home regularly for visits, and I'll be there too. But I just don't know. It's day by day right now. But anyway, thank you again. And I will keep you posted. And I love you all so much. Thank you.